Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series 7, The Root Vices. This series looks at the seven root vices from which other sins grow and identifies ways we can cut the root vices and become more like Jesus. Today's text is going to be from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. I'll be using the New International Version. You can follow along on the screens and on your cards or in your Bible. Hear now the word of the living, the true, the sufficient God. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? There was a great movie made back in the late 1940s, starred uh, Humphrey Bogart, was the main star. It was known as The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I was initially even going to show a clip out of it, but decided against it. But it, it's a really incredible movie. It's the best depiction of greed I've ever seen. Humphrey Bogart and another man are Americans down in Mexico, and uh, they fall on hard times, and they're basically in what amounts to a homeless shelter. And as they are walking in, they hear uh, an old man, a prospector, talking about his life of searching for gold and all the things he's seen. And he's telling these other guys that, uh, yeah, people go after gold. And he said, but, but the problem is they don't recognize, I've seen what gold does to men's souls. And he says, you go out there, and the people begin, and they think, if I can go out there and find a certain amount of money, I'll be satisfied with it. But then when they find it, they want more and more and more. He said, and it's never enough. He said, you go out and you're, the whole team, you have to be together as a team. You can't survive if you're not a team. And we're all good friends until the gold is found. And uh, Humphrey Bogart's friend actually looks at him and says, you know, well, uh, man, that's, that's, a, that's a disease and a problem I would like to have. And Humphrey Bogart puts his hat over his face and says, well, I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to dream of piles and piles of gold. Because he says, I wouldn't be that way. It wouldn't affect me. Well, in the movie, they go out and they find gold and gold fever attacks Humphrey Bogart and it completely eats away his soul and his rationality. And by the end, I won't tell you how everything happens, but everyone has lost everything. Greed has consumed them. They have nothing to show for it. Uh, and all it has brought is pain and misery. And it's not that gold itself did it. It's that greed does this. And what's interesting is I've mentioned many movies as we've gone through these series. And for some of the movies, uh, there, there aren't very many like Sloth that we looked at last week, particularly in what Sloth originally meant, which was that lack of desire. There's not a lot of movies for it. Perhaps Wally would have been the best, 
But for this, the problem was there were so many movies, I could, I could give you dozens and dozens of movies to watch. Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Wall Street with Gordon Gecko and the famous Greed is Good speech, Lord of the Rings with Gollum, Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, you can go on and on and on where greed is a centerpiece of our movies because we recognize there is something wrong with greed. So what is greed? How does it work in our soul? And how do we fight it? So let's take a time and uh, dive in here. <clears throat> Again, you'll have to bear with my voice. So let's start talking about the problem of greed. Now notice in our text in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, God's Word says this to us. Keep your lives free from the love of money. So what we're learning here is that greed is actually an inordinate desire for money and wealth. Notice it's not keep your lives free from money. Some people say, that, you know, uh, misquote uh, the scripture that we're going to look at in just a minute. In fact, the song Money by Pink Floyd does that. They, they say that money is the root of all evil, but that's not what the scripture says. It's actually here, notice, it's the love of money that we are to keep our lives free from. Greed is the desire to be rich. It's the love of money. In the parallel text that's more famous, the one that speaks of uh, the love of money that people know, is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says this, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. That's exactly what the Treasure of the Sierra Madre movie is about. They're wanting to get rich, and it plunges them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So notice here, Paul says it's not money itself, it's the love of money. It's not wealth itself, it's the desire to be rich. It's the, the need to be rich. Paul says that will pierce your soul with many griefs. Some people in the end have actually chosen wealth over the faith and they've wandered from the faith. So we begin by understanding that greed is not about what we possess, but rather what possesses us. That's the essence of what greed is. You can actually be very wealthy and not greedy, or you could be living in extreme poverty and be eaten up with greed. But make no mistake about it, as we'll see in a few moments, there is a danger that can come with wealth because obviously when we're around it, it can stir up greed. But the real essence of greed is about the love of money and the things that it buys. Now, the next thing that we're told in verse 5 is that greed is the opposite of contentment. Notice he says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. This is almost like a Hebrew parallelism going on here. In other words, what does it look like to have your lives free from the love of money? Well, it's to be content with what you have. Contentment is being satisfied with God and His gifts to us. But greed at its very core is discontentment and the desire for more. Greed says it's never enough. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, we read, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Now the writer to Ecclesiastes in the entire book he's going through and saying, I tried out everything that might be of ultimate a joy in one's life. He talks about trying food and wine. He talks about trying sex and pleasure. And he talks about having wealth. And the, the wise writer comes back and says, look, if you love money, here's what I discovered. You never have enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied no matter how much income you've got. You always thought it would be good enough, but it's not quite. How much do you need? Just a little bit more. And so the writer to Ecclesiastes says that greed is actually an insatiable desire. And in fact, very often, the more you have, the more you find you want. And finally, the the text that we're looking at today tells us the third thing about greed is not only is greed uh, an inordinate love for money, and that Secondly, it is a lack of contentment. But thirdly, greed is looking for satisfaction apart from God. It's looking for satisfaction somewhere other than in our Lord Jesus. So notice the writer goes on and he tells us, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because. Here's why. This is why it's possible for you to keep your lives free from the love of money. This is why it is possible for you to be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He's quoting a text out of the Old Testament, and he's telling us that the reason we can be content, the reason we cannot be greedy, is because God is with us. See, the soul was made for God, and our soul originally knew that to have God is to have everything. But in the fall, our soul was warped and greed comes to us and it eats away at our soul and it says that even God is not enough. I have God, but I need something else. Because God's the one inexhaustible thing in the universe to which you could never say, I need more. I I need something more than that. But greed looks and says, even God is not enough because greed at its core cannot be satisfied, no matter what it is. And in fact, we'll maybe re-mention this in a couple of minutes when we look at the sins that greed falls into, but the two remaining vices that we're going to look at, gluttony and lust, are actually just greed directed one to food and drink and the other towards sex and physical pleasure. It's both of them are saying, I have this greedy desire that what I have is not enough, and I'm going to seek contentment in those particular things rather than in God himself. So that's what our text tells us about greed, that it's about the love of money that is the opposite of contentment, and that it's looking for contentment apart from God. So let's talk about how greed works and acts as a root vice. And I remind us, and for our visitors today, What we're doing in this, you can see the graphic up on the screen, and it's a tree that lists all of the root vices, and they're growing out of this soil of disordered love. Every vice we have, these seven root vices feed into all the various sins in our lives, but they themselves 
are fed and sustained and surrounded and nourished by a disordered love. There's some way that our soul is oriented in a wrong direction. So how is it for greed? Well, here's the definition that I'm giving for greed in this series. Greed is a disordered love that excessively craves created goods and possessions, desiring them more than the Creator Himself. Okay? It's the the created goods and possessions, and it's about craving. So notice here, I didn't even put money in there because why is it that we want money? Do, Do people love little green pieces of cloth paper? No, we want what money buys. That's one of the things that the old prospector says in Treasure of the Sierra Madre is, what is gold good for? It, it's good for maybe putting some fillings in your teeth. That was about all it's good for. He said, but it's, we've attached this value to it because of what it can get us. And so, first, greed is primarily about excessive craving. It's about an excessive craving. Now, the Latin word for greed, and in the old list of the root vices, it was called... Um, Actually, and you may have heard of this word, it was avarice. And the, the root word for, for avarice in Latin, avere, meant to crave. So that's what the original word meant was craving. It's this deep craving desire. Now, this is important because how many of you need created things to survive? All of us. If you don't believe so, Try to not eat or drink. You live literally by consuming created things, and so do I. And so we have a need for created things. That's not the problem. The problem comes when greed says, I'm going to excessively crave those things. I'm going to seek my my meaning and my identity in those things things. And so we excessively crave them. And so greed is a good desire gone bad. And we're going to see that with every one of these remaining root vices. It is a good desire gone bad. In fact, basically every root vice is actually something that is legitimate that is turned away because the love is disordered. Now the second part in our definition of greed here is that Greed can never be satisfied because it always craves more. Since it's this excessive craving, greed in and of itself cannot be satisfied. So if you remember I mentioned in that movie, the old prospector said, I've seen what gold does to men's souls. And they get out there, and when they first find gold, they say, well, if I can only find you know, $20,000 worth, I'll be satisfied. And then it's 30,000, and then it's 50,000, and then they just stay, and I gotta stay just a little longer and a little longer. And that's exactly what happens to Humphrey Bogart's character, despite his statement that it would never happen to him, because that is the nature of greed. The, the saying that we've all heard before actually comes from John D. Rockefeller, who was the richest man in the world. And when he was asked how much money is enough, his answer was just a little bit more. He was the wealthiest man in the world. Linda and I 
recently went out and watched the movie that was about Getty and about his grandchild being, uh, being kidnapped. And they actually have a scene in there where he's asked and he basically answers the same thing. He is worth billions and billions and billions of dollars, but he actually bargained with the kidnappers over his grandchild's life. Because for him, everything was about the, the deal and the fight and the doing it, and there was never enough money. It was, it was really a depressing thing to actually watch. The richest man in the world, what they were asking for, he could throw away at any moment. And he was wheeling and dealing to buy art while his grandson was rotting away and near death, actually, at the hands of kidnappers. Because it was never enough. That's what greed does. Because greed at its core is about an excessive craving that can never be satisfied. It motivates both the prodigal spending of Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, the greed is good guy, and the miserliness of Ebenezer Scrooge. It's the treasure seeking of both the Pirates of the Caribbean and the Wolf of Wall Street. It doesn't care which way it gets expressed. It might be Ebenezer Scrooge sitting in there in the freezing cold hoarding his piles of money, or it might be a high spender out there with his billions. The point is it always needs more. It's always craving. It's always looking, and it can never be satisfied. And it will express itself in whatever form it needs to to keep trying to scratch that itch, but the more it scratches, the more it itches. That's the nature of greed. Thirdly, in greed, the created goods take the place of the creator. That's what we're actually doing. We're, we're looking to created goods, and we are saying these things take the place of God. So, again, the problem with greed is not that it desires physical created things. It's that it desires them more than it should, and in fact, it ends up desiring them more than it does God himself. The created thing takes the place of the creator. The ethicist and philosopher Peter Kreft said this about greed or avarice. Avarice is not desire as such for temporal possessions, but the immoderate desire for them. For it is natural to desire external things as means, but avarice makes them into ends, into gods. And when a creature is made into a god, it becomes a devil. That's a lot of wisdom right there. That's exactly what it does. Because the thing that you and I make into gods enslaves us. The thing that we're thinking is going to become our identity actually becomes our master. The thing that we think will free us, if I could just have, actually becomes that which will hold us and kill us. And that's why in the scripture, greed is actually referred to as idolatry. Paul points this out twice in the New Testament. I'll just show you one of them, Ephesians 5.5. 5. Paul says this, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In the modern Western church, we oftentimes think about those who are immoral and those who are impure. And we would very often, if somebody lived a wildly profligate, sexually wicked life and did it in a public manner, the church would quickly condemn them. But you can be greedy all you want. Except for Paul, you notice, says, which one's actually idolatry? 
It's actually, let's hear, it's greed. Such a man is an idolater. Because what you've done is, in greed, you've actually taken this created good and you've put it in the place of God. You've believed it's going to give you meaning. You've believed it's going to give you fulfillment. And so the misplaced identity of greed, as we talk each week about, that's the disordered love. So how does it affect where I'm trying to find my identity? In greed, I seek to find my identity in money and possessions rather than God himself. Again, the point of money is what it's going to bring me. So we're created to find our identity in God. We are the image of God. But we're now trying to find it somewhere else. And when created things become our God, we seek our identity in them rather than in the true God. Have you ever seen somebody that their identity is wrapped up in their cars or their house or their boat or their clothes or you just fill in the blank? And everything they think about themselves is wrapped up in what that thing says about them. What, what is said? Something we have made. And if you go back again and look in the Old Testament, Isaiah rails against idolatry for the same reason. He said, this is crazy. You cut down a tree, you burned part of it, you took the rest of it, you formed and fashioned something, and then you bowed down to it and said, it's a God. Isaiah would walk around today and look at many people and say, you're doing the same thing. It's just now that you're using metal instead of wood or you're using silicon, or you're using whatever it is. But you, you've formed and fashioned and made something, and then you treat it as if it is a god. So because greed is idolatry, it actually transforms our souls. Because here's the thing about worship. You become like whatever you worship. If you worship Jesus as he is, as the true eternal God, you become like him. But if you worship created things, you start to become like them. Whatever we worship is what shapes our soul. So let's think about this then. If greed is this way, and we're calling it a root vice because it feeds into other sins, how does greed feed into the other sins in your life as mine and mine? Because it's not so much even just greed that we're looking at, but how greed feeds those other sins. It's the root and the branches that goes out, out of which the leaves and the fruit of our other sins grow. Well, for one thing, if we even look at how it could feed another root vice, uh, how could greed affect envy? What if I want something and you have it? a material thing. Suddenly, I find myself being envious of you. And all of the other things we looked at that envy can do, where I start lying and cheating and, and gossiping about you and tearing you down. And the root thing may be because you have something that I want. Not a gift, but an actual possession. Greed can lead to lying because it'll help me get what I want, right? Or to cover up what I did to get what I want. Greed can lead to favoritism. I'm going through in the mornings, uh, I listen to a, a, a little short video every day called Daily Dose of Greek, just keeping me current with my Greek. And in it, we're going through the book of James right now. And James talks about favoritism. 
and how bad it is in the church when you speak to a rich person and say, oh, come here and have this seat. And to a poor guy, you can stand there at the back or sit at my feet. Well, why do we show favoritism? Why? Because James points out, he says, don't you realize it's very often that that rich guy that you're treating that way is the guy who exploited you yesterday. Why are you doing this? Well, the reason we do it is very often because of greed. We treat people based on what we think they can get for us in the future. And so we look at somebody and we'll treat them with favoritism because they've got money or they've got power or they've got access to something we want. And we think, you know, if I scratch their back right now. But see, how are we supposed to treat people? Based on the fact that they're the image of God. And does having a little bit more green cloth in my wallet make me more the image of God? Does it add any worth or value to who I am? See, none of that does. But when greed is at work and I'm thinking, what I really want to get is this over here, so I better show some favoritism to this guy so that I ultimately get what I want. This is one of the reasons, and it can eat away at us. Make no mistake, every one of us are tempted by greed. So it's one of the reasons, for example, in our congregation, as you all know, I have no clue what any of you give because I don't want to be tempted to favoritism. I don't want to sit there and think, well, I'm going to treat you a little differently because, you know, you were giving a lot. I have no clue what you give. Don't want to know what you give. So I don't treat you with favoritism because, friends, it is something, make no mistake, don't think that's a silly sin that somebody else would give into. Check yourself and watch how often you might treat somebody differently because of what you perceive they might get for you in the future. Another sin that greed can lead to is to actual theft. Now, theft can be something as simple as I walk into the CVS down the street and I see something I want and I swipe it and stick it in my pocket. But greed uh, and theft can also be via practices or passing of laws that unjustly favor myself or those like me over other people. The minor prophets railed against this, that it wasn't just, the, the rich did sometimes use unjust weights and measures. You know, when they were measuring things out, they had the scale set, but they also set things so that the laws were set up so that it kept the poor poor. And it helped the rich get richer. And this is the whole reason, why do we have so much money spent on lobbying? Right. Do you think lobbying is really about everybody is looking out for your best interest? Man, it, it's craziness. It has nothing to do with that. The reason they're doing that is they've got their own little thing and they are trying with billions and billions of dollars to influence laws and to keep those laws the way they want them to be. And friends, very often it's nothing but theft. And make no mistake, the fact that I hide myself behind a law, read the Minor Prophets, does not change that God calls it out and says, you're still stealing from other people. And we do it because of greed. And, and very, man, you start talking about changing those and you find out how much greed has got its hold on the soul of people because they will come up with every justification in the world to explain to you why it needs to be this way. And there is nothing other than greed. They're going to lose some feathering in their nest if it doesn't stay that way. 
Greed can cause us to view people as objects and to use them to get the things that we crave. Rebecca Koenig de Young, who is the philosopher and theologian that got me started thinking about this whole series a couple of years ago, she said this regarding greed or avarice. The hallmark of well-entrenched greed, then, is a willingness to use people to serve our love for money rather than the use of money to serve our love for people. In greed, you use people for money. But Jesus calls us to use money for people. One of the benedictions we use all the time, you know, where may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you so that his name may be known on the earth, his salvation to the ends of the earth. Psalm 67, where it takes the blessing of Aaron and the blessing to Abraham and it merges them together. And it says that the purpose of why God blesses us is to do what? Be a blessing. That's why we're blessed. We're not put here to figure out how I can turn you into an object so that I can get more blessing, but rather God gives me blessing so I can be a channel and pass it on. That's what God calls us to do. But what greed does is suddenly a created thing is worth more than the very image of God. That's a sad state when greed converts our soul. Greed causes us to uh, then, in society, I want you to think not only what it does individually, but in a society, when this takes hold, and friends, it has in our culture, then what you start to do is you value people in terms of how much they can contribute. Because what are they putting into the corporate pie here? And when you start doing that, it destroys the culture of life. And there is no value to the unborn, There is no value to the poor, the sick, the disabled, the old. They're seen as not valuable and of less dignity and value than those who are productive. Friends, when that takes root in a culture, you are in deep, deep trouble. But that is precisely where we oftentimes are. People are valued not for who they are, the image of God. God, but rather for what they can produce. And so we've got, I was just hearing the other day, there's laws being passed, and we're having one of the the latest things is uh, regarding Down syndrome. Iceland announced last year that it had virtually eradicated Down syndrome. And Peggy Noonan rightfully quipped, you haven't eradicated Down syndrome, you just killed everybody who had it, is what you did. But you know what? It's one of the major causes of abortion in our own culture right now. Because when we find out somebody has Down syndrome, well, suddenly they're of less value. Because somehow we think they are less the image of God. But friends, you are the image of God because you are human. Nothing else. It's not your IQ. It's not your physical strength. It's not the amount of work that you can produce. It's not what you're putting in, not how good a cog you are in the wheel and the machine. You're the image of God and you are of worth because God has set his love on you. 
But when greed sets into a culture, then the only value you have is what you produce. And there are actually, believe it or not, ethicists, and I'm not talking about wackos off on the side, there are ethicists today who are saying, basically, you know, when you get above 65 or 70, you ought to have the courtesy to just go ahead and die because you're no longer really productive. You're just a drain on society. How far is that from the Scripture? But see, that's what happens. Everything is valued by what you can produce. So <clears throat> Dr. DeYoung actually noted, it's kind of incredible when you start thinking about this, Scripture takes a hard line against greed because there are a lot more references to money in the Bible than to sex. And so that indicates something of the fact of how big a problem God thinks this is. The Scripture talks a lot about money, and not in the reasons because, you know, in our culture, everybody thinks, oh, he's a preacher, and he's going to be up there talking so he can get money. That's not why the Scripture's talking about it. The Scripture's not talking about money because God needs your money or mine. He does not. The Scripture's talking about it so much because it's the God that consumes our souls. So, how do we apply the Word? How do we lay the axe to the root of greed? Again, I want to talk about the opposing virtues and then the practices that are going to nurture those virtues. I remind us that, that you know, for every vice there are opposing virtues and furthermore there are practices. And everything you and I are doing each day as you go through life, we are either feeding our vices or feeding our virtues. Practices either lead towards virtue or they lead towards vice. So let's talk about what the opposing virtues and vices, uh, the opposing virtues and the practices are. First, the first opposing virtue is obviously contentment. We saw in our text in Hebrews 13.5 that the opposite of greed is contentment. So the opposing virtue is obviously contentment. So we have to cultivate contentment to cut the root of greed. And so our text did that. And in fact, if you remember back in 1 Timothy 6, which is another major text on this, in 1 Timothy 6, it also talks about and contrasts. Paul says, which, which uh, Tony started the meeting with today, where Paul said, look, naked you came into the world, naked you're going to leave. But if we have food and clothing, we're content. We, we don't need anything else. And it contrasts it with greed. Contentment cuts off the oxygen needed to fan the flame of greed. What greed needs to survive, contentment cuts it off. It, it cuts it off at its root. It cuts off that oxygen. So we need to cultivate contentment in our lives. But this is very, very difficult because particularly of the culture that we are in, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. So how do we practice contentment? What are the practices that lead to it? Well, two things. First, thanksgiving. If you want to be contented, you need to every day recount to God how thankful you are. I strongly encourage the practice every time you sit and eat. Friends, you live in a world where there are hundreds of millions that don't have that meal. Now, not because our planet doesn't produce enough food, 
but because greedy, wicked people keep even food from others. This morning, I had to choose which pair of jeans, which jacket, which shirt I was going to wear. Because I got many choices. There are many people who do not have those things. Last night, we were home and one of the grandkids got sick and so we wanted to up the heat in our house. I didn't even have to go downstairs. I just rolled over, picked up my iPhone and changed the temperature in my house. How could I not be grateful I mean, man, I have got so many things. We haven't even gotten to the gospel. I have so much to be thankful for. And we need to practice it. It needs to be specifically spoken. And if you can't think of anything other than those things, I tell you, friends, the gospel. You were born in sin. You were born an enemy to God and his kingdom. And then you were in collusion with Satan. You chose to commit cosmic treason against the God who had created you. You spurned him. You turned away. So did I. And then in spite of that, he took flesh. He came and he worked redemption for you. And when you were dead in trespasses and sins, he raised you by his Holy Spirit. He made you alive in Christ Jesus. He has made you a joint heir with Jesus Christ, promised you eternity in heaven, and begun reforming your soul. If that doesn't give you something to be thankful for, just hit the doors. I have nothing else for you. That is everything. We should every day thank God for those things. And the more you do that, the more it rises contentment up in our soul. And the more I start realizing all the other things that I have to be thankful for. Secondly, I encourage you, not only speak to God about it, speak to others about it. We, we love to complain about, oh, this is going wrong, and that's going wrong, and this could be... How often do we speak to people of blessings? That, man, God, God has been good to me. God has been gracious and kind to me. I am, I am thankful. I, I have a good wife. I have good children. I'm, I'm blessed with grandchildren. I get to be with them. I get to spend time with them. I am grateful for being part of this congregation. I'm thankful for all the things I just mentioned a couple minutes ago. Do, do we express that to one another? Because what you speak shapes your soul. Over time, it just, so if I'm speaking what I don't have, guess what I'm feeding? Greed and envy and other things. But if I speak, this is how God has blessed me, then I start fanning the flames of contentment. Secondly, another practice is Sabbath. We spoke about this last week with sloth. But Sabbath, again, it is in part to rest, but it's also to worship. But also one of the other aspects of Sabbath, if you remember, is that you were trusting God to provide for you. See, greed says, i got to grab it, i got to get more, i got to have it, because it may not be there tomorrow. And Sabbath says, no, the God who provided for me yesterday, the God who provided for me today is the God who will provide for me tomorrow. <laughs> and that's why in Israel it was actually built in a weekly Sabbath, 
There were new moon Sabbaths. There was every seven years you had a whole year off. And then in the Jubilee, the 50th year, you had two years in a row that were off where you trusted God to feed and care for you. You want to cut at the root of greed, say, no, I practice Sabbath. I set a day aside and I am not working. I am not going about working to earn money and to run around and to do more. This is a day that is set aside. I do not work on this day. I trust my God. And so we have to, now one of the crazy things, I I did a lot of reading a couple of years ago on Sabbath, and you know what America's uh, contribution to the Sabbath literature is? How we've done studies to prove that it's actually really good, because if you take rest on this day, you can work harder and get more tomorrow. That's what we've done. We've turned Sabbath into greed and lack of contentment. Don't do that. That's dumb. That's not the point. It may work out that way. That would just be a blessing and a fruit. The point of Sabbath is root and cutting greed, not fanning the flames of greed. So that's two practices you can do for contentment. Second virtue is what is known as simplicity. Now what's meant by simplicity? These these are ancient virtues. Simplicity is the ability to live without a constant need to acquire more stuff. And it's really about a state of the soul, okay? It's saying that I don't, I'm not always on the lookout to try and get more. It's about an inward detachment from consumerism that enables us to escape the trap of greed. Now, consumerism is really important in our culture. All of you, whether you realize it or not, there's a theologian named uh, Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, has written a whole series of books called The Cultural Liturgies, where he argues that the one place today that nobody really is doing liturgy a lot is in the church. We don't like talking about practices. But he says, I'll tell you where liturgy is going on in the mall. Every time you go down there, they are shaping you. They are molding you. They are forming you into a worshiper of stuff. And and they're doing it from the moment you're young. I've come in before. Have you noticed? I mean, it's cute on one hand, but I go into Safeway, and they've got little shopping carts for, like, my grandkids, right? And little things that come up and say, little shopper. And you know what? That's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, we're going to go ahead. Let us start molding them now. Let us start shaping their soul now. Let us start making them consumers now. Now, in a uh, book called Why the Devil, I mean, an article called Why the Devil Takes Visa, um, the the author Rodney Clapp uh, quoted a a retailing analyst named Victor Labau. And Victor Labau said this. he, He made his work in the retail industry, and he said this. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, a liturgy, Uh, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction, ego is that sense of self, in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. Consumption, now and forever, world without end, 
Amen. Do you hear what he's saying? And this isn't a guy on the side. He's saying, this is what we do. This is how we make it work. I have pointed out before, if you were astute, right after 9-11, what were we told to do that we could really strike a blow at terrorism? Pull out your credit card. We can plastic our way out of this. Friends, you, you can't. You cannot do that. But that's at the heart of the culture in which you and I live. So Rodney Clapp later on in the article says this, the consumer is schooled in insatiability. He or she is never to be satisfied, at least not for long. The consumer is tutored that people basically consist of unmet needs that can be appeased by commodified goods and experiences. Accordingly, the consumer should think first and foremost of himself or herself and meeting his or her felt needs. In other words, what our culture is doing to you and I is shaping us and saying, here's who you are. You're not the image of God. You're not a person who is made to be a worshiper of God. You're a consumer. You need stuff. And we have it. It's not the gospel. It's our gospel. And our gospel is we have the new device. We have the new thing. Which is why, again, I point out Go home this week and pay attention how little advertising actually tells you anything about the product. Because the product's not the point. The point is you consuming, you having a need, you wanting. That is what they are encouraging in all of it. So what are the practices that embrace simplicity? Well, first, one thing you could do is you could take a fast from our consumer culture for a week. I've mentioned before that you know, this practice of fasting during Lent is not just about food. Okay, you can fast from all kinds of things. Fast from one thing to feast on another. So I'd encourage you, take a week sometime and just try avoid reading advertisements. I didn't write the number down the other day. The number of ads the average American sees in a day, you would be shocked by. It is in the thousands and thousands of ads that come across your eyes every day. Because everything that's free in our culture, how are they paying for it? There's ads all over the place. They're everywhere. They are constantly creeping in on you and I. And what is the point of all those ads? Is it to say, be content with what you have. You don't really need this. Is that ever what they do? Not, not to pick on Apple, I have an iPhone, but I remember getting so irritated when the iPhone 6 ad came out because they said, this changes everything. And if you understand electronics, and I do, I used to be a computer programmer, this changed almost nothing would have been true. It's just a very small incremental change. But if we're honest and admit that, you won't go out and spend a bunch of money on our thing and if you don't spend money on our thing, we can't keep these wheels going, so this changes everything. Friends, we need to just stay out of that. The, the great American thing of sitting there and going through the Sunday circulars, Sunday, a day that you're supposed to be content, we now stuff our newspaper with all kinds of things to make you discontented, right? Avoid just going to the mall and hanging out. All of that stuff, it's crazy. I walk in... 
I walked into a couple of days ago, we stopped by Target because I needed a taller ironing board. And we walked in and I started seeing all these TVs flashing on the wall and into my mind wondered, I wonder how much it would cost to get a bigger, I don't need another TV. Why am I even thinking about that? Because you notice they don't just have them turn on. They're all flashing stuff and looking and they're pulling you in. And suddenly it's like, I need one of those. I need a 97 inch model on my wall. I'll have to build a bigger wall to hold that thing, right? That's what it does. So, you know, try and spend a week and say, I'm just going to buy what I absolutely need. I'm not, I'm not just buying stuff. I'm going to buy what I need. And I'm not going to spend time looking for stuff. You might be surprised how hard that is to try and do. And secondly, I would encourage you to have set times for this practice because, you know, what's really funny is, what, where did the word holidays come from? What did it originally, what was the original word? Holy days. So the holy days, which originally oftentimes were days of fasting, what do we do on holidays now in America? What's our contribution to the holy days? Right, we sell stuff. Right? That's what we do. We sell stuff. And so, remember I've mentioned before, what is, what is the least favorite holiday to American corporations and our consumer society? Thanksgiving. We got to get by it. We got to get to Friday. And now it encroaches on Thursday. Don't participate in that stuff. Not because I'm telling you that you're sinning or I'm going to, you know, make a video of you and put you up in a teaching or anything like that. I would not do that. I'm telling you for the good of your soul. There's something sick about a soul that can't take a day and say, I'm content. I need nothing. I'm not going to look at anything. I'm not considering anything else. You might be surprised how hard it is. Then the, the last virtue, and we'll close, is we have to practice generosity. See, greed's about give me more. Generosity's about what can I give away. And so we practice generosity. The opposite of greed's desire to get more is give more away. Greed is a deep lie. Because generosity lies at the heart of the universe. For the heart of the universe is the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who before anything else existed, were giving of themselves to one another. There was no greed. There was no consumption. There was an ever-giving, ever-loving between the members of the Trinity. That is the root reality of the universe. But greed comes in and says, gimme, 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 gimme. It's a deep, deep lie because it's disordered and it doesn't understand that the, the heart of the universe is giving, not stealing. That's why Paul quotes Jesus and says, it is more blessed to give than receive because you're lining up with who God is and what God is like. So what are some practices? Two practices. Number one, just like we talked about in prayer, we give to God in a biblical manner and proportion. Now this is where the Old Testament principle of tithing came in. And what tithing was about was we gave to God first, we gave a significant amount, and we gave in the recognition that God owned everything. Tithing is misunderstood a lot of times that, well, God owned 10%. No, God owns 100% of everything. In fact, Paul quotes 
on, in Athens, he says, look, he's actually quoting pagan philosophers, that in him we live and move and we have our being because everything we have, even the light, the breath we have, the air we breathe is God's. Everything is God's. But tithing is a reminder of that. Now, the New Testament does not command tithing. Okay, It does not pick that up. When Paul discusses giving for two chapters in 2 Corinthians, he never mentions tithing to Gentiles. However, the principles are really the same. And it's important because, let, let me be honest, God does not need your money. He does not need my money. That's not, that's not why it's important. I need to give for me. You need to give for you. Because greed comes in so hard and grips so strongly, we need to put an axe to that. So the Old Testament principle of tithing, of giving first, giving a significant amount, giving a recognition that God owns all, it's not about the precise amount. And it's really hard to do because we don't live in an agricultural economy and all of that, and you get into all kinds of stuff. All those questions miss the point. But the principle that I give first, not, well, I would have given except for, you know, we ordered too much pizza out this month, and let's be honest, where we really spend our money on. No, I give first, God, because you are first in my life. I give a significant amount because I'm trusting you. I'm giving enough that i got to live in faith, just like the children of Israel did out in the wilderness, that you're going to provide. And thirdly, that I'm giving in recognition, you don't own just the part I'm giving, you own everything. I am only a steward. That is all. I, everything I own is yours. And so I would encourage you to establish a pattern of giving to the work of God. It cuts at the root of greed and it builds a heart of trust in God's provision. That encourages giving to the local church and it also includes, though, giving to other things. There are missions work and things that I give to completely apart from our church, even apart from the missionaries that we support here, just to be engaged and involved and give. I encourage you strongly for you, not for me, not for us, not for the church. Again, I don't know what any of you give. God does and your soul does. The second part of it, though, is not only giving to God, but even giving to others. Now, this includes giving to those who are in great need. You want to help cultivate not only generosity, but contentment? Go join the group and hang out at the Lighthouse Shelter once a month. Talk to folks who don't even have a roof over their heads. Talk to people who are struggling to get by. Spend time with those who are recovering from sickness or childbirth or surgery. This is when we just do meal trains in the church. When you get into a place like that, it's good for us to give and serve others. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But it also includes just random acts of kindness, just blessing other people with your gifts. See, we so often, you know, when I'm done with something, I want to figure out how I can sell it to try and get my eye. Rather than just saying, can I just bless it and give it to somebody? Can we, just, can we use this to help somebody else out? that would really cut at the root of greed. Blessing other people and saying, I've been blessed to be a blessing. So what we, uh, I'll conclude with this and then we'll pray. Um, 
Dr. DeYoung again said this, generosity's loose grip makes it easy to give things away. A mark of having a virtue is the way it becomes a natural part of who we are. So that giving is delightful, not an onerous duty or dull chore. The test of liberality is whether giving things away is easy and enjoyable. In other words, if I'm trying to give it, but I find myself trying to hold on and it's being rusted out of my hands, that's a sure sign right there, uh uh-oh, greed has got a hold in my soul because it ought to be a joy. And again, as I said last week with sloth, the more we practice, the practices shape our soul and then it becomes a pattern where we find ourselves finding joy in doing it. What we're going to do is we're going to stand and have a closing prayer and then actually we're going to have a water baptism. So if, uh, as, I, as we're getting ready to pray here, if Ronnie wants to go ahead, if we can get some guys and get this rolled out and then we're going to do a water baptism in just a minute. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. Lord, when you appeared to Abram, you told him that you were his shield and you were his very great reward. Father, what we need is not more stuff. What we need is you. And so, Lord, we pray, we live, Lord, just as Israel struggled because they lived in a culture where there were idols all around them, Father, they kept finding themselves ensnared in the worship of Baal and the Ashtoreths. Lord, we may not have those gods, but we live in a consumer culture. We live in a culture that tells us we should never be content. We should always want more. We need more stuff. Father, I pray that you would mold and shape us. I pray you would help us to cut this vice. Father, in the sins that we talked about it feeds into, even how it feeds into the other root vices we'll look at the next two weeks. Lord, since our soul has been bent and our love has become disordered, we keep thinking we're going to find who we are in something else. We keep thinking we're going to find rest and joy in something else. But Father, it's not found in money. It's not found in possessions. It's not found in the stuff of this world. As Augustine said, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So Lord, I pray for each of us this week that we would find our rest in you. Lord, shape our soul and then fill our soul. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Receive the blessing of our Lord. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless whoever blesses you, and if anyone should curse you, I will curse them. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Go in the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.